just before I start with the message today, I just wanted to say that recently when I was travelling up to Scotland, I sat next to a lady on the train and it didn't take us very long to discover that we were both Christians and um, we talked all the way for three hours sharing testimony. So I just want to say greetings from Chowdean to Jackie and the friends at Huntley Christian Fellowship in Aberdeen. So thank you for that. Uh, right, now I wonder how many of us like a puzzle. I just like word puzzles. Um, I'm, I'm not good at anything with numbers. I like the wordle and code word, but I can't do anything that has numbers in. But there's been a I always say, if you're going to do a church quiz, get on Doreen Oliver's table, because she's always really good with any kind of a quiz. But recently there was a, a programme on television called The 1% Club, and they start off with 80% um, of the country can answer this question, and then it goes down 40, 50, until it gets to only 1% of the country can answer this question. So here's the question. Now I don't know whether people at home can see this, so I'm just saying... I'll give you a minute or two just to think. What would the next two letters be? Anybody? If you saw the programme, don't answer. No, well, obviously you're all not in the top 1% of the country then, sorry. Because it says... Gold and second gets you silver, what does third get you? Oh. It would be BE. They didn't win on the programme either, so there you go. But you see, though you don't need to know a lot of facts for a quiz like that. It just depends on how your brain works. But there are some other types of quizzes where you really need to know all of the facts. So can anybody tell me the names of all 12 disciples of Jesus? Anybody can do all 12. <laughs> okay, let me tell you then. There's Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Simon the Zealot, James the Less. Now that would give you an inferiority complex, wouldn't it, James the Less? Bartholomew, who was also called Nathaniel, Thaddeus, who was also known as Jude or Judas, Matthew, and Judas Iscariot. Because Jesus chose largely unrefined men to be his followers. They were mostly farmers or fishermen. I'm not going to say any more about the 12 today because they come up again in chapter 6. But today we're just looking at the calling of one particular disciple whose background was a little different to the rest. As Malika read to us, we're looking at Matthew, the tax collector. You see, it just says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi. He was Levi or Matthew. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Now, it's easy for us to just miss the significance of this because to a faithful Jew in those days, it would be hard to imagine a more loathsome or hated person in all of society. Tax collectors were working for the Roman government, the occupying forces, and they were exacting taxes from their own countrymen, taxes which were used to support the forces that occupied their land. 
And what was even worse was that they collected more than was due in order to line their own pockets because tax collecting was like a franchise. The Roman government devised a system to collect taxes as cheaply and efficiently as possible. And they did this by auctioning the right to collect taxes in a certain area. Now, a man could purchase that right, then he was responsible to the Romans for a certain agreed sum. Anything he could raise above that, he could keep it for himself. And some of them even employed thugs to force people to pay. And I thought, it compares, for example, with a person in occupied France or Germany or Guernsey collaborating with the German occupying forces in World War II for their own financial gain. Or perhaps it's a bit like modern-day moneylenders. They were despised by everyone, Jews and Romans alike. So you can imagine the shock when Jesus called Matthew to leave everything and follow him to become one of his apostles, or as one child wrote, Matthew was a taxi man who became a possum. But I can't help wondering how the other disciples reacted to this. These rough fishermen being in the daily company of a tax collector? You know, the Bible doesn't tell us because it would just be conjecture, but you think they could be saying, you know, he's got to be kidding. Surely not him. I have to put up with him every day. But you see, we know that Jesus, being God, looks at the heart and he could obviously see something in Matthew that he knew he could work with. And surely that is comforting and encouraging to all of us who are sinful people, knowing that there is no one beyond the love and forgiveness of the Saviour. Let me ask you, are you concerned today that you are not enough? Well, you would be right. You'll never be good enough to live the Christian life. You would be right. But he is. Self-striving can cease and fear of not being enough can be declared false. Second Peter chapter 1 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And those whom Jesus saves, he also keeps. Now Matthew is so excited and thrilled to be chosen that he doesn't hesitate to leave everything to follow Jesus and he throws a banquet at his house. Now you notice that the religious, oops, I thought it was going there. The religious leaders, they, they ask the disciples the question. Because I don't know whether they just lack the confidence to confront Jesus directly, but they go and ask the question of the disciples. Now Jesus was just too clever for them. The Pharisees were rigid followers of the law. Sadducees, more political, a bit more liberal about religious laws, and the scribes, they were the interpreters of the law. The Pharisees considered themselves to be the good guys, and they divided people into two groups, good or bad. Whereas Jesus, he saw the whole world as sinners, in need of forgiveness and restoration. And he explains why he was there in his statement. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. If you're sick, then you know that you need a doctor. And if you know that you've got things wrong in your life and you've done wrong things and things have not worked out, then you know that you need a saviour. John Newton had been a notorious slave trader as a younger man, but after becoming a Christian, he became a respected minister and he wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. And on his deathbed, he could say, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. 
that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great saviour. It seems that the religious leaders were looking for any fault that they could find. Why were these religious leaders at such odds with Jesus? Probably for two reasons. One was jealousy. Jesus was popular, they weren't getting any credit, so they didn't like it. And secondly, resistance to change. Not many of us like change. They probably didn't like that verse in Isaiah 43, which says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. I'm making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. Now, in the message translation of Matthew's gospel, and uh, although Matthew's gospel is not signed, tradition has it that it was written by this Matthew, Matthew the tax collector. And he was writing in chapter 12. Jesus said, John the Baptist came fasting and they called him crazy. I come feasting and they call me a boozer, a friend of misfits. Well, I don't know about you, but I, for one, am very glad that Jesus is a friend of misfits. And speaking of the religious leaders in Matthew 23, Jesus said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And he went on to call them snakes and brood of vipers. Some very stern language from Jesus there. But Jesus obviously had strong feelings about hypocrisy, pretending to be better than we really are. And I'm sure that we're all guilty of that from time to time. But there is nothing that he will not forgive, but he desires honesty. We tend to think of Jesus only saying kind and loving things, but there were occasions when he spoke sternly and really spelled things out. Now, I've been reading in the message translation recently, and I was stopped in my tracks by, with, in Matthew 11, because here we have Jesus confronting not hypocrisy, but unbelief. People with a couldn't care less kind of attitude, plenty of them about as well. So I'm reading, this is from um, verse 20. Next, Jesus unleashed on the cities where he had worked the hardest, but whose people had responded the least, shrugging their shoulders and going their own way. Doom to you, Terazin, doom, Bethsaida. If Tyre and Siren had seen half of the powerful miracles you have seen, they would have been on their knees in a minute. At judgment day, they'll get off easy compared to you. And Capernaum, with all your peacocks strutting, you're going to end up in the abyss. If the people of Sodom had had your chances, the city would still be around. At judgment day, they'll get off easy compared to you. Then it says, Abruptly, Jesus broke into prayer. Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You've concealed your ways from sophisticates and know-it-alls, but spell them out clearly to ordinary people. Yes, Father, that's the way you like to work. And I love that because it just said, you know, he's telling them, you know, these people who are refusing to believe, but then Jesus abruptly broke into prayer. And I think that's what prayer should be. You know, sometimes Colin and I would just be chatting and then we'll think, we should pray about that, you know, and just stop and pray. Alternatively, sometimes when I lose my temper, I should stop and pray, 
instantly, but I don't. And then I have to say sorry to the Lord after I've calmed down. A few weeks ago, when Gloria talked to us about the ladies' prayer group, she showed a, a short video of Louis Giglio, who said that if people knew how much had been changed by their prayers, they would never stop praying. And that same thought was in a daily reading book I had a few weeks later. And again, in the message chapter 18, it says, when two of you get together on anything at all on earth and make a prayer of it, my father goes into action. Make a prayer of it and God goes into action. And then, this is the bit that made me stop in my tracks because after condemning the cities for their unbelief, Jesus resumed talking to the people. In verse 27 it says, Jesus resumed talking to the people, the crowd, but now tenderly. There's so much love in those three words, but now tenderly. And I just think, you know, this is Jesus looking at all of us today, the crowd, and speaking tenderly. There must have been plenty of ordinary sinful people in that crowd, but Jesus loved them all, gave them the opportunity to change, as he does with us today. I'll just go back to where I was. And then going back to Luke's gospel, they said, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so did the disciples of the Pharisees. But you always go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins the wine will run out and the wine skills will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wine skins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for he says the old is better. Now, I think this all still happened at Levi's banquet, although I'm not sure why the religious leaders were there if they disapproved of a party. Often people fasted. They went without food because they wanted things to change. John's followers fasted in anticipation of the arrival of the one who was coming, the Messiah. It would make no sense for Jesus' disciples to fast because they knew that the one they had waited for was here. Now, I love weddings. You know, I love the celebration, the joy, the families getting together. And Jesus refers to himself as our bridegroom. There's no need for the disciples to fast while he was with them. But later, after the crucifixion, they would. Fasting is something that Christians do as part of their prayer and spiritual life. Then Jesus went on to tell them a parable, a small story with a big truth. If you cut up a new shirt and stitch a patch on an old one, then you will have ruined two shirts. Wineskins were made from animal hide, and when they were new, they were flexible. New wine could expand during the process of fermentation while the new skin would be able to stretch, the old ones would become brittle and burst. But the meaning is that the Old Testament, the laws, the rituals of Judaism, are the old garments and the old skins. Jesus coming in his ministry are the new garment and the new skins. Jesus didn't come to patch up the old way, adding what was missing in the Jewish religion. The point that Jesus is making is that he has brought something new, Jesus brought about change that didn't 
simply fit into the old form, a reason to celebrate like guests at a wedding. He's not saying that the old covenant was bad, but that Jesus was the fulfillment of all that had gone before. I've long puzzled over verse 39. Why, after what he just said, did Jesus then say that the old was better? I find I'm not the only one who's found that verse difficult, as it were. Tried to look it up, and scholars far cleverer than me are also a bit puzzled. But it seems to be that the suggestion was that Jesus was being ironic. If we only had a video film of Jesus speaking rather than the written word, then we might have been able to understand the tone of voice that he said that in. So he didn't really mean the old ways, the old laws were better. Um, it's him being a bit ironic. So, the new wine. Are you ready for a new chapter in your life? In order to move into all the blessings that God has for you, then you have to be willing to let go of the old. Perhaps you've had some unfair things said to you. Perhaps you've had some unkind words that were spoken to you. Perhaps things have gone wrong in your life and you know, you're just kind of stuck with it goes over and over in your mind thinking about these things that have been said well I think it was Bishop T.D. Jakes and I can imagine him saying this and I think it was him who said it instead of allowing things to hold you back why don't you take a step of faith into the new it's time to get a new bigger vision it's time to rise up with a new attitude have the attitude that says I may not understand it it may not have been fair, I might not like it, but I am not getting stuck on this page. I know God has a new chapter for me, a chapter filled with blessings of favour and victory, to let go of the old wineskins of resentment, of unforgiveness, of failure, of pride, and move into all that God has for you. So to conclude, Jesus is calling everyone to follow him regardless of background or lifestyle. He desires honesty from us. No need to hide the things we think, say and do. He knows everything anyway. Avoid religious hypocrisy. And let go of the old wineskins to embrace the new wine of the Spirit. And don't put off till tomorrow what can be done today. To quote the Dalai Lama, there are only two days in the year when nothing can be done. One is called yesterday and the other is called tomorrow. So today is the right day to love, to believe, to do and mostly live. Now they are wise words from the Dalai Lama, but we couldn't do it without the Lord Jesus. We can only do that, live a full life by trusting the Lord Jesus and walking through life with him. Let's pray. Lord, we long to hear your voice speaking to us. We pray, Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that every person here will hear your voice speaking directly and personally to them today, whether it be sternly, Lord, or tenderly. We just pray, Lord God, that you will speak and that we will respond appropriately. Amen.